Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with his former teammates, the Nasty Boys, Rob Dibble and Norm Charlton from the 1990 World Champion Cincinnati Reds. Here we go! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to Boone Podcast. Today in the program, we've got two pretty special guests. They're both 1990 World Series champs. They're pretty synonymous with one another. They'll always be known as two-thirds of, of one of the nastiest bullpens of all time. They're the nasty boys. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Rob Dibble and Norm Charlton. Boys, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having, having us, Boney. You got it, man. This is this will be cool. This is this is my maiden voyage. Uh, I'm the I'm the captain here. I got three people online. I've never done this before, but I like it. Norman, <laughs> I'm going to start with you. Who came up with the term "the nasty boys"? Where'd it come from? I, as I remember this story, and Randy denies it, but this is the way I remember it. We were in Houston for opening day, uh, lockout year. We opened in Houston, which is a rarity for us opening. We usually open at home. Um, Tom Browning started for us. He hit Glenn Davis, their number four power hitter. He hit him twice, and then Randy hit him a third time. Uh, And after the game, the Houston reporters came in and said, hey, they're talking about retaliating over there and hitting somebody because y'all hit Glenn Davis three times. And, of course, Dibs and I were totally innocent in this one, as we were (laughs) in most of them. But being the radar hounds that we are, we were all three sitting there when the reporters came over, you know, looking at the radar gun. And, you know, Randy threw the slowest of, of all of us at 95. And Randy said, well, looky here. We haven't thrown a pitch. We haven't thrown a fastball under 95. If y'all want to start hitting people, then we're in. And the reporter goes, well, that's pretty nasty. And Mr. Mello, <laughs> as he's known to us, says, well, we're three nasty boys. As he giggled and jumped around the locker room. Dibs, not that I don't trust Norm. Is, is that exactly how it happened? That's it's pretty interesting. I know. That is, that is I know. Pretty, is it- that is pretty accurate. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. You know, we, we come into spring training. We got Randy in a trade. Norm and I, by the way, people who don't know, we were roommates for seven years, minor leagues and the big leagues. Um, so we were the best of friends. We get Randy in the John Franco trade, and we get Lou Pinella after Pete Rose got a lifetime ban and was suspended. So, you know, we were, we were kind of new. We got locked out in 1990, if people don't realize. You know, that was four years before the strike. So we always started at home in, in Cincinnati. It, that's going back to 1869 that they used to start – opening day in Cincinnati and there's a big, you know, parade and all this stuff. And, you know, cause you played there, Boney. Um, so now we're in Houston for opening day because it got pushed back because of the lockout. And we went nine and oh to start the season. And that first game was just like the first of nine straight wins for us where we were very confident. We had a great team. Randy was like the cherry on top. Um, John Franco was not the same type of pitcher. He was more of a low 90s changeup guy. Randy was right at you, in your face, closing out games. So, you know, when they brought that to him, I mean, I wasn't surprised that he said that because he was coming over from the Mets. I was more surprised that anybody would doubt uh, 
how ferocious the Reds were. The Reds, going back to the 70s, always fought people, uh, always battled hard. And if you wanted to start a, a war of hitting guys, we, we were not the team you're going to mess with. So I, I think that's really accurate what Norm said that Randy said. Hey, hey while you, we're I'm, going for accuracy here, Booney, Booney, you've made a mistake already on the accuracy part. You said two-thirds of possibly the best bullpen in baseball. Make no mistake. No, 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 no Norm, I'm talking all time, are. son. You were what? and still are the best bullpen in baseball. <laughs> let let everybody what? compare their numbers to ours and let them compare their radar guns. Those other bullpens didn't change the way Mr. Leland managed games. They, they just did <laughs> Let them compare them. Let them do all that. We were, period, the best bullpen in baseball. Well, I love it, Norm, but I got to let you say that. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, oh, yeah. and this is, this is honest coming from a player. I came a little bit after you guys. I'm a little bit younger. So I just remember, and this is back in the day when we didn't have, you know, we didn't have 80 outlets to get our sports. When we were in the minor leagues, and you guys had the right. similar, in the 80s minor leagues, man, you finish that game, and the first thing we do is we go, we go back to wherever we're staying, our apartment, and we're going to see how the big boys did. We're watching Sports Center baseball tonight. and i remember yeah. watching your bullpen and this is before i got to meet you guys but i remember thinking you know what i'd be all right if i don't have to face those guys and i remember that sitting in <laughs> peninsula peninsula virginia in the carolina league you know and, and you guys both know me as a young guy i was pretty brash but i remember thinking to myself well, i'd be yeah, all right yeah. if i don't have, I, i'd be all right if i don't have to face those guys but uh yeah definitely Did take a day off on that day Huh? You take a day off on that day and you'd be okay with that? Yeah. I, I really would. I remember I remember Dibs throwing pitches, especially now, Norm, righty on righty. That's always tougher for me. But I remember Dibs just coming unglued, throwing a slider, and guys missing it by two feet. And and I'm sitting there as a young minor league player going, How the how the frick do you miss a ball that bad? And the more I watch, <laughs> I said, I see a lot of guys doing that. And uh, then with you and and uh Randy coming from the left side, uh man, that that was a nasty bullpen. So I'm glad you said it, but I had to say one of the greatest of all times. And an argument could be definitely made as the greatest of all time. All right. I want to talk about how you guys got together. Norm, I'm going to start with you. You grew up in Louisiana. You went to college at Rice. So I grew up. No, I grew up in Houston. I was born in Louisiana. All right. You're born in Louisiana. Louisiana. Another. Jeez. All right. Go ahead. I grew up in Houston. You're up in Houston until the fifth grade. My dad was uh, took a job in San Antonio, director of a children's home. Uh, my, my high school coach was a big longhorn guy. Uh, power hitter. In fact, his son, Ryan Langerhans, played in the big leagues for a long time. Um, Lefty with the Washington Nationals, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Left-handed hitter. So he played with the Rice coach. He played with the Rice coach, David Hall. Drafted by Montreal uh, in 84, traded to the Reds in 86, and nobody wanted to room with Dibbs, that he was too crazy. So I said, oh, I'm that's me. I'm your Huckleberry. I'll room with him. All right, as a kid, yeah. little league, are you, we really you, you crazy dri- or were we subdued? 
<laughs> we were actually very subdued. I mean, on the field, we were get it done. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. We dumped buckets of water from the 32nd floor on people. And look, we went out. And we had a good time. We drank our beers. And we, yep. Hey, let, let's go back a minute. I said we're the best bullpen ever. How about the bullpens today? How about y'all do it like we did it? Not going to happen. It's not. We went out. We had fun. Uh, we went out yeah. at home. We we met the public. We interacted with people everywhere we went. Uh, we left tickets for cab drivers to the game. I mean, we yep. we had a blast doing this. I, yes. I can agree with that. Uh, I mean, we we Booney, we were out every night till four a.m. We were on Rush Street in Chicago. And, you know, not up to no good. We were just out, and, and we finished at the lodge, and anybody who knows Chicago knows that's the last bar of the night. Have another drink, and then go home, get your rest, get up, and the first thing Norm and I would do, get some lunch, probably a cheeseburger and fries, um, go to the ballpark by 2.33, and it was on. And that, that was our routine. We never – wavered from that I, I think that uh you know norm's one of the, the few people on the planet i trust with with everything and and always have my back and we and we didn't we didn't hang with a lot of guys either so maybe joe oliver and a couple other guys but you know and we like quiet places we didn't go to like all the dance clubs and all that kind of stuff we we always look for kind of a mellow maybe you know live country or rock place and just hang out and, and kind of blend into the background with the people. And I, and I want to get to, you say you guys were roommates seven years. You guys played together in the minor leagues. I want to, I want to back that up a little bit and talk a little bit about the minor leagues. Norm, you signed in 84 with the Expos first round pick and dibs. You're the first round pick in the secondary, uh, the secondary phase of the draft out of Florida Southern with the Reds. Um, were you? Bo- yeah. I, I want to start here. You both are known as dominant relievers. Were you always relievers, or coming out of, of uh, college, were you starters? Uh, I'll go to you first, Norm. I, uh, I was a starter coming out of college. The only time I relieved is we'd play a, a Friday night and a Saturday doubleheader. I'd, I'd start Friday night, and I might relieve second game, first game on Saturday, you know, back when they weren't worried about a guy throwing more than 32 pitches in a week. Um, I was just, I came to the big leagues as a starter. Uh, Pete was our manager when I came to the big leagues and we came out of spring training the next year and we had uh, traded or Rob Murphy was a free agent. I think went to Boston, I think. Yep. Uh, You're right. And, and Pete said, man, Norm, he goes, I tell you what, you're my fifth starter. You're going to go to triple a for a couple of weeks our left-handed guys in the pen, the guys we picked up are not getting it done. You want to try it? I said, if it means me going to the big leagues as opposed to going to AAA, I'll do anything you want me to do. Um, so he stuck me in the bullpen there for a little while. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a starter almost my whole career. Gibbs, how about you? And for me, I, I, I came out of college early because I couldn't stand it. Um, the, the secondary phase just meant that I had been drafted out of high school already back then. They don't even do the secondary phase anymore, but, you know, still considered uh, a first round pick. Kurt Stillwell was like the regular phase first round pick. He probably got, I don't know, another $50,000 more than me, but, um, 
you know, you, you go to you go to Billings, Montana, and there's ten pitchers. They're all six foot five, and everybody was a starter in college or high school, wherever we came from. And by my third year in the minor leagues, I was behind a lot of college type guys, and I was you know twenty years old. And they they basically were like, I think my last start in spring training, I threw sixty pitches in one inning because I just I didn't have a breaking ball. And, you know, a consistent one. And I, and so of that year in, what was it, 84, 85, I go to the bullpen, I make the all-star team as a closer, uh, an A-ball. I go to double-A uh, the next year, go from double-A to triple-A, actually blow out my knee. And I got to go down to winter ball in Puerto Rico. And I finally hook up with somebody that could teach me a curveball. And how to how to hold it properly, how to throw it properly, how to mentally be confident enough to throw it when I was behind in the count. His name was Ed Figueroa, and he was an amazing big league pitcher. Had a great curveball, and so like you were you're commenting. I mean, I always had four seam, two seam fastballs that would move and I could locate, but I never had an off speed pitch that I could just manipulate. And like Norm, Norm can manipulate his forkball better than anybody I've ever seen. He could throw one first strike, and I try to teach kids this with with change ups and and curveballs, sliders, cutters. You've got to be able to locate one at a, a certain speed and the other one to get people out. And once Ed Figueroa taught me to throw one first strike and one in the dirt for you know a strikeout pitch, I was in the big leagues the next year. So um, we really, I think, you know, Norm, myself, Randy, guys like that. You know, if you had two great pitches, which is what we were taught in the minor leagues, instead of three mediocre pitches, which is where a lot of guys are right now because they can't locate them, um, we we were kind of a different era where, you know, you were just going to attack. The National League was an attack league, you know, challenge guys with fastballs and then get them out with breaking balls. You know, the, the Braves won 14 division titles by pitching, uh, you know, high and tight, low and away. That was Leo Mazzoni ball. And so that, that's why you saw the three guys on that team go to the Hall of Fame. You know, I, I think it's pretty simple stuff. Just get ahead, you know, get people out of there and get in the dugout. It's just that's, that's the way we were brought up with the Reds. Norm, you come over from the Expos, I believe, in 86. And uh, you both make your debut. Yep. You both make your debut in 88. Uh, and as we've discussed already, uh, you guys were pretty similar mentally. I mean, and, and knowing you both intense, protect your teammates uh, at all costs. And you just wanted to go and get people out. And, and what I find fascinating about Dibs, what you were saying about Norm, this is back in 88 or 90. I got a chance to play with Norm on a couple different occasions. We were teammates. And I think what really separated Norm was that fork ball. Back then, there wasn't too many lefties. You know, as a right-handed hitter, the the least amount of things I got to worry about. And from a lefty, weren't too many people throwing the forkball. Norm was throwing it. I believe Facero. <laughs> he was amazing. Facero was throwing it. And and I want to say yeah. Chuck, Chuck Finley was throwing it. And I'm telling you, because we never yeah. see it as hitters, when a, somebody had a forkball from the left side, it was like, We've never seen it from the left side. We're used to righties throwing it, so that's not not a big deal. But when a lefty comes up with it, it's like, wow. So 
Norm, how much how much do you attribute the success for having something at a time when you played that not too many lefties had? Tons, tons. It was, you know, before I learned the fork ball, I had a rinky dink slider and a terrible curveball. I didn't really have that out pitch. Um, our pitching coach at Rice, when I went back to work out during the off season, he threw batting practice for the Astros pregame, and he, Mike Scott taught him how to throw that fork ball. So he taught me how to throw the fork ball. The first one I threw in the bullpen was phenomenal. And my fingers went wide. Uh, I had the ability to throw it. Uh, man, it would roll in there at 80 to 82, maybe 83 sometimes. And then I had this habit of wiping behind my head somewhere and some sweaty stuff on the ball. And I could throw a fork ball at about <laughs> close to 88, 90, you know, with maybe, well, you might call it a spitball. I don't know. It would go down and act just like my fork ball, but it, it added five or seven miles an hour. And I think that's one of the things that really, really helped me. You know, on those really, really tough hitters, uh, and Buddy, you can probably attest to this, when you see the same pitch and it's two different speeds, and it's, you know, seven, eight miles an hour off the fastball, then it looks exactly the same. And that makes it really tough on guys. And that's no, one of right. the things where Lube had the ability to use me against right-handed hitters as well as left-handed hitters because they never saw the split. Right. And, and uh, I mean, people out there listening to the Boone podcast, this is fascinating stuff because, you know, you watch it on TV and, and you see these players and you see big league hitters and you see the good big league hitters. It's not a big deal for us if a guy throws 97 mile an hour nasty slider you know usually the the bar is is usually your your breaking balls 10 miles an hour off we don't mind that because we're creatures of habit we're, we're built for that we know okay if he throws 92 93 his breaking balls probably 83 84 his curveballs probably 75 76 when you can come up with something that throws us off that that's when big league hitters panic. It's it's not the the normal. If you're hitting your spots with those normal uh, numbers, you know, like I said, that's why that's why I always used to think when a guy could take off 15 miles an hour between his fastball and say a changeup, man, I we've never seen that before. What are we going to do? It's almost like that big league hitter. He goes from a really good big litter, big league hitter to, Oh, that's panic now. And I, and I really think that fork ball for you, Norm was so devastating. Cause we just, I, I know I'm thinking I used to face Finley and go, man, this fork ball. I can't see it. It's coming out of nowhere. Hideo Nomo gave me no problems. It's coming out of the right side. Finley's throwing it as a starter. And I'm going, I haven't seen that before. So, uh, yeah, I think I, I, this is cool stuff. I could talk about it all day, but we don't have all day. You guys coming up in the – You guys come – Back at you in Seattle. Well, I'd look back at you and go fork ball, and you just put your head down and laugh. Yeah. Totally I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. Because I know, you know, we, we as hitters, I, even know, though we're on the same team, we talk to those other hitters. And those other hitters like, yeah, that's a nightmare. And, and Norm, you're, you're, you know, throughout your career and, and especially our time, which we'll get to later in Seattle, uh, the way Lou used you was those situations. And it didn't matter. You know, now it's always lefty, lefty, lefty on lefty. With Norm, it was different because of that football. He could face any righty and, and nobody yeah. was really worried about it. All right, I want to get back to you guys in the minor leagues. Obviously, you guys are, you know, best of friends still to this day. But I want to talk, I want to talk about Dibs. What was the competition like 
between you guys, between you and later to come on uh, Randy Myers, uh, coming up through the minor leagues, or was there any? There, there was none, Booney. Um, I, I learned early on I'm not competing against Norm or anybody else if I stink. <laughs> if I'm not doing well, um, I'm not going anywhere. So there were some guys that probably rooted for you to fail. I, that's not my nature. I wasn't raised that way. So, uh, you know, like Norm said, he was coming up as a starter. Um, I was coming up in the bullpen. I had a lo- lot of bonehead closers in front of me that weren't really talented, so I wasn't even competing with them because they didn't have similar stuff. I, I really needed to find a secondary pitch, have one that I was comfortable with. Uh, I never really had a problem throwing strikes at 95 miles an hour with a fastball. It was really getting something to complement that. So, you know, as far as competing, you know, I, I, I there was a point where I, I didn't think I'd ever make it. I, I honestly, there was a point where, you know, uh, I had other managers from other teams. This is why I went to winter ball. If I don't go to Puerto Rico, I don't think, I honestly think I don't play in the big leagues. Um, if I didn't meet uh, Sandy Alomar Sr., pitched to Benito Santiago and Sandy Alomar Jr., um, and have Ed Figueroa as my pitching coach, because they were all, like, very confident in my ability more so than me. They were like, listen, dude, nobody throws as hard as you. Nobody throws strikes like you do. You just need something to go with it. And once somebody from the Reds, because Norm can tell you, the Reds were brutal to us. They, they, they like played so many games with your mind, you, you didn't think you were very good. And, it, you know, if it wasn't for my teammates and other guys like Norm that, that you know, we were constantly trying to pick each other up mentally because it's such a, a game built on failure. Honestly, I think by my fourth year, if, if I didn't go to Puerto Rico, I would have quit. I, I just I, Mentally, I didn't think I had what it took stuff-wise to get to the major leagues because velocity back then wasn't getting me to where I wanted to go. So, you know, I, I I wanted Norm to do great. I wanted my teammates to do great. I, it, it's kind of devastating spring training. Norm can tell you, and Brett, you know, um, when guys get cut that you're fr- where you were friends with for three, four, five years, it's it's the worst. Their careers might be over. So uh, I was closer, I thought, to the end uh, before I got called up to 88 and thinking I was going to actually make it. Uh, well, so when 19, you have a coach, not- tells you you'll never pitch in the big leagues. <laughs> You had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> we, had a, we had a big league yeah. coach that told us both point blank, you'll never pitch in the big leagues, both of us. Well, and where, yes, where is he now? I don't, I don't know. know. And I don't wish, wish ill on him, but that was no. serious BS when I was 20 years old. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mooney, you talked about like the competition between us. Mm-hmm. We were in the big leagues as a left-handed setup man and a right-handed setup man roommates and it wasn't it wasn't really a competition it was a luxury man if i come in and have a bad game guess what guess who i got right. behind me that's right dibs <laughs> it allows me to take chances and dibs knows that man he he can take a chance with a three two slider yeah. or, or whatever he right. needs to do because if he screws up and he, or he has a bad night he's got me coming in behind him and then both of us can say you know what if we both have a bad night guess what we got randy to clean up the mess yeah it worked really well yeah, and, yeah. and 90, Randy joins you guys. And the thing that's cool about that Reds team back then is, you know, that you see the documentaries and, and you see La Russa talking about, hey, I thought about using this Eckersley guy in a one-inning situation. Uh, 
you're in the same time frame. It's 1990. You you essentially have three Eckersleys. And yeah, to me, cool. that's pretty cool. <laughs> I, and, and I don't know. And, and now that you're making me think about it a little bit, which I don't like to do. I don't really know that anybody in a modern day has what you guys had. The diversity, essentially three closers coming out of the pen could close on any given night. I know Dibs got the majority of the saves in that time period, but you guys were picking up saves too. Nowadays, if that closer has a good year and goes start to finish healthy, it's very rare to somebody else to get a save. But 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 on that team in particular. Booty, booty. How about this? Norm and I, and I'm pretty sure this is factual, still the, the only, only uh, relievers. To Norm had 26 saves in the same year. I had 25 saves. So how about that being roommates? And one guy has 26 saves because I was hurt when the season started, so Norm assumed the role. I come back right at the All-Star break, and Lou kind of breaks Norm's chops and gives me the job back. And I get 25 in the second half. So we get one guy with 26, one guy with 25. That's never been done before. Unbelievable. But it didn't bother us, though. I mean, we were no, asked to take names. We were good with it. Yep. We were good with it as long as you paid us, and we could, you know, go out drinking after. Yeah. That, and that 90s Reds team, you got a young Larkin. You got an Eric Davis in his prime. Paul O'Neill, Halbert, uh, Sabo. And the one and only Lou Pinella and Marge Shot is your owner. Take me through. Who, who wants that one? Take me through that year. Oh, go ahead. Um, I'm just. I'll just say this. Marge was a could be the sweetest woman in the world, or she could be really nasty. And you have to understand. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. Uh, Marge was raised in a different era than we lived in today than we lived in in 1990. March, March was an older lady in 1990, and she came from a German family that was that had a, a value system and a belief system that was different than than the mainstream people. That it would have been a nightmare today. It she would have been booted out of the league within 15 minutes of the first pitch. Um, but you know, it was back then. I mean, I've heard her say things and we've all heard her say things and do things that, that today would have been just atrocious. But I mean, you kind of, I mean, you, it, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. It's just, she was brought up in a way and raised in a way in a family and, and times were different. They were, I mean, words were used and things were done and people were treated certain ways and, and that's not necessarily her fault for her upbringing, but uh, she could be very nice or she could be very ugly. I mean, I yeah, remember that, coming I mean, over. There's no, excuse, there's no excuse for her bigotry, but, you know, she also raised millions for the children's hospitals. She always yeah. raised millions for the zoo. You know, every, uh, you know, right after spring training, we'd go up there. She'd take us to a nursing home where her mother, who was like 100 years old, was, and give them monopoly money and they would, you know, and I'm, I'm very spiritual. I'm Catholic. And, and these, these people in this nursing home would pick who they were going to pray for, for the whole season, you know? So yeah, she was, she was a bigot and racist, but then there was this other side. So it's kind of, how do you, how do you square someone who's like, I don't know, 
bipolar schizophrenic. <laughs> I can't describe it, but alcoholic. He did, yeah, alcoholic. <laughs> I mean, chain smoker. You know, ate fast food till she died. I mean, it's just you know. So people, I, I don't hate on people. I don't have that that chip. But you know, she just she did things that that would whack your brain out one minute and then. You know, the next day, turn around and and raise millions of dollars for organ donations at her her fifteen hundred dollar a plate dinner. Where yeah, we were, were we were the entertainment and we signed autographs and stuff. But but there you have it. She was still giving stuff to other people. I mean, Marge, I come oh, over. You know, I'm a I'm a, I'm a kid, and I'm you know I'm playing in Seattle. I get traded to the the Reds and. Uh, I come over there for the 84 season. I remember just kind of looking around like, oh, man, I just kind of proved myself a little bit. Now I got to go to a new team and new teammates and Davey Johnson, <laughs> the skipper, and and Marge is my owner. And I just remember Marge coming down there, and it was dog hair in my back pocket, and it was ride the elephant when I go to her <laughs> party. And I remember Bernie Stowe, what an awesome clubby that was in Cincinnati forever. And I'd come to Bernie and I'd say, Bernie, you know, I need a dozen bats, man. He goes, well, you know, Marge likes you to turn in those cracked bats to get the new ones. I'm like, come on, Bernie. I handed a kid one. I got jammed. I handed a kid coming back to the dugout a bat, and I gave away a few others. And, you know, eventually we'd work it out. And I remember just the little knickknack things like that. But when at that trade deadline, the one thing Marge wanted to do is she wanted to win. She wanted those Cincinnati Reds to win. She'd make us fly coach once a year, coast to coast. We got neon, we got Deion Sanders and, you know, whoever else was on the team at the, at the time. And, and it wasn't fair to the public for us to be on that plane with them. At the same time, it wasn't fair to us coming off a game or a series and having to fly uh, bizarre times, but, but interesting times for me. Um, so that 1990 season, Norm, when did you know that something special was going on? I mean, you you guys, you kind of blow through the regular season. Eventually, you make it to the World Series. You're playing the Oakland A's, and I think reigning uh, World Series champions at the time. Nobody gives you guys a chance. It's the Bash brothers. It's this and that. You end up sweeping them in uh, 4-0. Talk to that a little bit about that season and leading up to that postseason. The the toughest part of that whole World Series was beating Pittsburgh. That if Pittsburgh would have beat us, they would have beat Oakland probably just like we did. Pittsburgh was tough, tough, tough. We really had no problem with Oakland. I mean, you know, we played smash mouth baseball. We didn't throw a whole lot of breaking balls up out over the plate. So we we, we went, didn't shy away from people. You know, sliders away. Uh, just about every pitcher that we had mastered the ball in throwing the ball in with conviction. Um, as Maddie Sinatra would say, we went through those guys like saw blades. It was, I mean, it was amazing what we did to those guys. Um, it, uh, back to when did we know? I don't know, about probably in the middle of the, middle to the end of the first month, well, I think all of us felt like we had something really special, somewhat like our 2001 season, Boney, though, you know, we knew pretty quick in Seattle what was about to happen. And, you know, you know, God forbid a plane crash or, you know, a train wreck or something to derail us. But uh, 
And we, we got a pretty good lead, and we put it on people, and we kept the pressure on, and we kept our foot on the gas pedal the whole year. Every time it would get close, we, we'd run off a string of games, do what we needed to do to to give us a margin where we could take a breath. But um, the best part about that season was when it was over. When we could take a breath and go, man, it was a grind. It really was. It was stressful. It was a grind. But at the same time, it was tons of fun. And and that was, you know, people, I guess a lot of people do remember, but I, I really have been looking at that team. We had Eric Davis on the podcast a few, few, uh, few weeks ago, and it made me kind of look back at that team and, and the futures that guys went on. You know, Paulie O'Neill goes on to four championships in New York, but you had, you know, the concert, you got Halbert at first. Uh, Lark obviously went into the Hall of Fame. Uh you got Joe Oliver behind the plate, who was a rock. I mean, that was that was a good team. You had Rios as a starter. He was your, he was your ace. And you had Spuds, Chris Sabo at third base, who I got a chance to play with later, and I got to see some Chris Sabo uh, up front and person, you know, up close and personal. Not too many people get to see that. He wasn't an everyday player at that point. But that 90, 1990 Chris Sabo, pretty damn good player that that you know not that many people nowadays hear about dibs you got a sabo story for me something pg i got many i got many because you know i came up uh the year chris was starting in 88 he ended up uh winning rookie of the year and then uh, after we both kind of uh had some injuries we wind up on the white Sox together in uh 95 and and Chris, you know, Norm, Norm will back me on this. Chris had one thing in mind and one thing only. That was just playing hard-nosed baseball. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He didn't want to talk to anybody after the game. He didn't want, he didn't want to pat himself on the back for doing his job. He just – he he I, he was a consummate professional when it comes to baseball. So he hits a game-winning home run. And instead of, like, you know, going in and talking to the – you know – uh, media and stuff like that. Chris gets in his car in his uniform and goes home. He gets in it. He goes right up the, the walkway at uh, Cellular Field in Chicago and goes right to the the players' parking lot. Gets in his car and goes home. So, um, so now this, my ex wife and my kids uh, were very young. They're waiting for me, and I was still battling. You know. A, a huge arm problem and arm surgery from the year before. And I'm trying to get through that. And, uh, so I was doing a lot of like stuff in the training room. I come out about an hour later and his wife is standing there. And I think he had two kids at the time. And Susan Sabo like looks at me and goes, Hey, is Chris still in there? I'm like, <laughs> Chris left, uh, an hour ago. He left right after the game. And I, I had to give his wife and kids a ride home. He left everybody at the ballpark. So, um, yeah, he he was not a guy to, to mince words. Um, he and Paul O'Neill were inseparable and best friends. They had their own language, uh, their own dialogue. And but but you know he was highly motivated to just go out and play third base as hard as you could ever play the position. He was fearless, and I've never seen anybody like tear up the left field line with doubles like Chris and and then right after just you know shower up 
get out of the clubhouse and go home. I mean, that, you know, show up first and probably leave first. <laughs> probably one of the first guys to ever be like that. Yeah, I, I loved Shane. Very I loved. Yeah, I loved him. And I, like I said, I got to play with him when he wasn't an everyday player anymore. But uh, I, I I believe that story because I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking what, sometimes Spuds would have a – and for those listening to the podcast, when I refer to him as Spuds, that was that was Chris Sabo's nickname. But I remember many a game, you know, Sabes would – or Sabo would come in you know, in the ninth inning to pinch hit or in the eighth inning to pinch hit. By the time we're coming off the field and guys are getting their wits about them coming up in the clubhouse. I remember many times what you're explaining right there. You look you look for Sabo and it's like, where'd Sabo go? Oh, he's he's already gone. He left. And even on the road, too. Oh, we, we called him a cab. He's gone. No shower, just gone. But he had one game. Yeah. In one game where he rolled his ankle in his first at bat at first base. And uh, Lou took him out of the game. He went in the training room. And they put ice on it, compression wrap, taped it back up. About the fifth or sixth inning, he came back out into the dugout. He's like, Lou, put me back in. I can play. <laughs> he already took him out. Little league rules. Like, put me back in. And, and Lou's like, I can't play back in he's like yeah you can i'm okay look i'm good he ran up and down the dugout and lose like somebody get him out of here <laughs> he, he was the re-entry rule boy something wrong with the boy yeah, yeah rule. he was something else hey all right so i got another one we're in des moines iowa and he had been struggling so he took a bat order and you know how expensive bats were to minor leaguers and stuff and and he cut up his entire bat order into little pieces and uh, so eventually we we're at a card show together and somebody walks up with a bat for Chris to sign a piece that they must have gotten from Des Moines, Iowa out of the trash. And he's like, where'd you get that bat? And he was like, he was pissed because, you know, that <laughs> he didn't want to see that bat ever again and uh, or anything from that bat order. So, yeah, no, in, intense. I don't think intense is a good enough word for for Chris. Um, you might want something a little bit more uh, over the top and intense. About Paul O'Neill throws a helmet, Lou goes to kick it and falls on his tail in the dugout. <laughs> People are tearing stuff up, throwing stuff. So Lou says, I'll fix this. He goes and has them buy a heavy bag and puts it down in the tunnel. Oh, yeah. The first night, the first night, Sabo destroys it with a pickaxe. Yep, we're not sure where the yep. pickaxe came from. We don't know. Oh, probably the grounds crew. I guess. Went and got it from a maintenance shed or a, something. And, he went yep. and found a pickaxe, destroyed the big, heavy yep. punching bag. Um, there was no booty. He killed it. He, he killed about it. six inches of it <laughs> hanging from a chain. Six inches left. The rest of it was shredded everywhere. It was dead. <laughs> Those were fun times on that team. I mean, when people, people. People say, man, we really love that 90 team. We really love that season. We enjoyed that season. We just look at them and go, not like we did. Not uh, Y'all don't understand how much fun we had on that team. Um, you were talking about, I, I, Eric Davis. talking about Eric Davis a minute ago. If Eric, Eric stays yeah. healthy, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. That's the guy we had in center field. Yeah. I, and, and you look at Eric's numbers, and, and I talked to Eric about this. 
you know, as a player, man, as I went on and I went through my career, you, you learn and you get experience and you start to appreciate things. Early in my career, I didn't really appreciate, you know, I didn't understand that 2020 club. I thought you hit 20 home runs. Who cares if you steal 20 bases? Because obviously I wasn't a base stealer. But as I got older and I had some years where I hit, you know, a lot of home runs and then I'd, I'd throw in 12 or 15 stolen bases Man, I was tired, and I and I found a new appreciation for the power-speed combo. And now I look at Eric Davis. He's not stealing 15 or 20 bags. He stole like 70 while he's hitting 30. And, and that's the yeah. type of player Eric Davis was. There's, not, there's nobody like that anymore, let alone uh, if you steal 70 bags in today's game, you'll win the stolen base title by 20 let alone a guy that can do that also hit 30 home runs. You're right. And, and I've heard that from a lot of people. All right. We're going to change topics a little bit. Today's game. I'm sure you guys watch it. How would the, how would the nasty boys handle the players today, the bat flip? And, and I guess it's just a generational thing, you know, and it's tough for guys like us. We played where, where it was really an eye for an eye. And it was everything was handled. The business was handled on the field. And the best best guys I played with, I didn't have to turn to a reliever and say, "Hey, did you see them hit me?" Or a starter. It was kind of a known thing. Like they knew, we knew, we handled it on the field. Once it was handled, it was squashed, and everybody had a clean slate. How would the nasty boys handle well, we, today's activities? We had. We had a conversation about this in spring training when Randy came over. We said, look, we don't really know who you are, okay? But we do know that you're our closer, and we know that you're good, okay? But your job is to finish the game. Your job is not to get suspended. Your job is not to get kicked out. You're not, your job is not to let us down for a week. You got Dibs and I over here. If we lose one of us for three or four days, that's okay. Randy, you finish the game. You let Dibs and I handle everything that needs to be handled. He's like, I'm okay with that. Uh, and it worked that way perfectly. Now, this day and age, like you said, it's a generational gap. It's different. We were just in Cincinnati two days ago, and we, we didn't really talk about the bachelors. All that stuff doesn't really bother me that much anymore. It did. No. What, what, what was, is a astonishing to us right now is do you have any idea how many strikeouts we would have if we played today when it's okay for a guy to hit 220 or 230 and hit 30 bombs and strike out 200 times when when the when the eight hole hitter or the three hole hitter that's okay we randy would probably strike out eight or ten you know per nine and i would probably strike out 15 and dibs would probably strike out 25 uh, if we could play in today's age with with the with the lack of with the lack of hitting it's it, it it is astounding to me watching this game the lack of ability of some of these hitters man go ahead and put the shift on and have eight players in front of you and one behind you and they're all on the right hand side of second base Almost. Can you imagine what Edgar Martinez would do to that? 
Well, Norm, I think I think a lot of that is attributed is to what organizations really emphasize on what's important. In our day, hitting 300, that's a big deal. Driving in 120 runs, the big boys do that. They've take they've taken the emphasis off that and, and, and telling these players at a young age, you know, in the minor leagues, hey, we're not really worried about your average. We're worried about do you have the ability to walk? We, we want you to hit home runs. We want you to have launch angle. And I think unless you're an elite player in today's game, if you're a Soto, an Acuna, a Tatis, uh, Freddie Freeman, uh, a, a, an obviously a Mike Trout, that type of player, there's such a huge discrepancy between the really good hitters that are going to hit 310, 315, and everybody else. The majority of everybody else, you either hit 300 or 200 in today's game, it seems. And there's no real middle ground. You know, and I ask all the time, what happened to that 268 hitter with 14 homers, drives in 65, and plays a hell of a third base? They really don't exist anymore. Those guys aren't hitting 268. They're hitting 210. And I think that's attributed to launch angle. And it's important for you to hit home runs. And we don't care if you strike out. We also don't care how many hits you get. We care that you walk and you hit the ball out of the, out of the ballpark. So now you have people that their ability level doesn't incline them really to be a home run hitter, but the, but the game tells them they have to hit home runs. And I think that's the downfall. I think you're going to see it correct itself a little bit. And there's a lot of great things I have to say about today's game. You know, there's things I envy that the technology these hitters have at their fingertips. Norm, you knew me as a player. I, how many, I was just video, video, show me everything you can show me. So I envy right, a lot of things. Right. And I think there's things. But here, let me, let me jump in, Booney. Let me jump in. Okay. You got Ricky it. Henderson and Kirby Puckett were the two highest paid players. What did they do? They hit home runs. They hit for average. They stole bases and they played great defense. They did everything well, and they were the highest-paid players. What we do today, and you said, where's the 260 hitter? Name's Bryce Harper. He plays for the Philadelphia Phillies, and he makes $330 million. For, for I don't want to say mediocrity, but he hit one year where he had 100 RBI. Okay, he, he's not a 35-home-run-a-year hitter. He's about 26, if you look at his averages. He averages 85 runs driven in a game, and he hits 260. So when you're paid for mediocrity numbers, you're, you're paid $35 million a year for that. That's what everybody wants to be like. So when we played, and even 10 years before Norman us, when you're trying to be Ricky Henderson or Kirby Puckett or get 15 gold gloves like Ozzie Smith uh, or Dave Winfield, remember, I grew up in Connecticut, so I watched the first $3 million player. And that was Reggie Jackson. And the first guy to get like $2 million for 10 years, that was Dave Winfield. So they were all the same type guys, but it changed after them. Then it became Ricky Henderson and and Kirby Puckett and Paul Molitor and Gary Sheffield and and Robbie Alomar. Those were the highest paid players in our game. So, you know, and they're all in the Hall of Fame. So when you're when you're paying guys who are never going to wind up in the Hall of Fame, thirty five forty million dollars a year for mediocre numbers, that's why the game is where it is. And I and I'm with you. I envy uh, the technology, but the technology I would be using 
to beat the shift, to hit 350, you know, to, to get myself to Cooperstown. Everybody, there's two things they want right now. They want money and they want to brand themselves. They want to be on MLB The Show. Trevor Bauer wants to be the highest paid guy without earning that money. You know, I mean, you got to go out there and win 25 games a year uh, to be paid $40 million a year. Not anymore. That guy, I think his career record coming into this year for Trevor Bauer was like 75 and 63. That's, that's when you get paid the most money to be mediocre, that's why the game's struggling. The game is becoming boring because it's a three-run homer and a strikeout. I would, I would venture to say guys are bigger and stronger and faster right now, but I don't think they're better. I really don't well, think they're, they're better. I think you could put a team like our 90 team against most of these teams that, that had the ability to hit the ball out of the ballpark but also had the ability to play small ball. You realize the pressure that guys like Eric Davis, Paul O'Neill, Sabo, Larkin, you, the pressure that those guys put on a pitching staff, the pressure that they put on a manager, the way he's going to manage the game, then you got three clowns like us coming in out of the bullpen. I really, I mean, I feel like we would beat the devil out of most of those teams on a daily yeah. basis because we played a complete ball game. I mean, it's, yep. it's like looking at a, it's like looking at a at a guy and going, man, that guy's a five tool player. We were a five tool team. We could pitch. We had we had, look we had a great bullpen. You know why? Because our starters took the ball into the seventh or eighth inning. Um, they were, our starters were able to put, take the ball into the seventh or eighth inning. One because they were pretty good. Two because in the third inning we bunted a guy over and got that extra run. In the fifth inning, we hit the ball the other way to move a guy to second. He went to third on a wild pitch and somebody scored him on a sack fly. It's now five to nothing in the fifth. Guess what? Our starter can put two guys on. Luke can ride that guy till the seventh and bring in one of us. We played a complete ball game. We, we also played a game that was exciting. We got on the field, yeah. picked up the ball, we threw the ball, hitters got in the box, they got in the box and hit. There was stealing, there was people getting thrown out, there was throwing inside, there were fights. People wanted to come to the game because it didn't last four and a half hours. And you watch 12 guys strike out, and you watched a 10 to 6 game. Yep. And, and, let me, and let me jump in there on this because, Norm, you're dead right. So, the, the game of the night last night, Booney, was Dodgers Padres, right? I saw it. 32 strikeouts, 32 strikeouts. They had 15 runs. The pitchers walked 16 guys, and they had 15 hits. And the game took five hours. That was the highlight on SportsCenter. Oh my God! Why would what somebody watch by that? the Padres? Who would who would want to watch that? You freaking put yourself to sleep waiting for the outcome. Booney, Booney, you got a couple kids. Could you imagine sitting at home watching a five-hour baseball game with your kids? Not going to happen. Their attention spans about thirty minutes. Ours is about two hours. Not going to happen. They wonder why people are not watching it. Wonder well, why guys think, like us can't stand watching it. I, I think. There's some good points you make, and and I think the strikeout has become a problem. And, and the way not to, the, the way to fix it is not by moving the mound back. Yeah, you hit a, on a good point, uh, 
Norm, about saying you think the players are bigger. Yeah, nowadays, the technology, the training techniques, the money in the game allows these guys to have people around them 24-7, 12 months a year. So their whole thing is being in shape. The guys, it just seems like they're getting bigger. They're stronger. But I think you made a good point. It doesn't mean you're better. Maybe from a physicality right. standpoint, maybe from a, on average, yeah, I think the stuff is a little better. Doesn't mean they locate it better. Doesn't mean they're, they're better, better pitchers. Means no, they throw and, and a Booney, We were all analytics people back then. And here's, here's some analytics I'll give you about pitching right now. The, the guy that I was envious of and, and still are and was remarkable was Greg Maddox. Greg Maddox averaged 77 pitches per nine innings for his career. 77 over nine innings. For him, a perfect inning was three out or three, three pitches, three outs, a couple ground balls and a fly ball. Every starter right now, you can, you can look it up right now. Every guy averages 20 pitches in an inning, and they, they're at 100 pitches by the fifth inning. They are gassed. That, you know, back then when Norm was coming up, Norm can tell you his pitching coach, probably in college, probably in the minor league, said the same thing. Norm, a good inning, a well-pitched economical inning is 10 to 12 pitches and get the hell out of Dodge. Now it's a 20. You're almost doubling up on that. That's one of the biggest problems. It's not even, it's not even that we don't get enough strikes called. It's not even that there's not enough hits. These guys, they nibble, nibble, nibble. Like I said, there were 32 strikeouts and 16 walks. That's why the games take so long. Stop nibbling, make some more contact, and, and if the umps call some more strikes and guys have to swing, there'll be more action than people will want to watch. And I think when you bring up Maddox, it, and to me, uh, you know, my years in, in the big leagues, uh, Greg Maddox for me, the best pitcher I've ever seen. Now, I, you know, I faced Pedro for, for a three or four year. Yeah, he might have been as dominant as anybody. The great ones, Randy Johnson. But pound for pound, Maddox, uh, from a technical standpoint, from a stuff standpoint, from a knowledge standpoint, best I've ever faced. Because you're right, he didn't, he didn't have to strike everybody out. He knew if he had that eight-hole hitter up and he was on that night, he can get him at will to hit hit a ground ball to short. He doesn't have to waste five pitches striking him out. But if you come up with a runner on third and less than two outs, it's a different Maddox. He's going to strike, try to strike you out now. And that's the difference of that mentality of knowing when to do that and knowing to make the most uh, efficiency with your pitches, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Go, go back to the 265 hitter. The 265 hitter is a guy that's not that good. But he spent five years in the minor leagues, and he learned the game, and he learned situational stuff, and he learned how to hit. He's not that good, but he put the grind in. He, he's, a, he's an Ed Sprague guy. He knows about hitting. He sits on the back of the plane with you and Edgar and soaks in all this knowledge. And, and He's not that good, but he hits 265 because he works at it. He moves the ball the other way. They put the shift on. He, he knows how to hit the ball the other way. He, he knows how to do things. Those guys are gone. I, I tell you how to stop it. Stop paying for it. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you strike out 200 times, I'm not paying you. Let somebody else pay you. I, I couldn't I really imagine. Believe, I really really. Believe I mean, I, could, I couldn't imagine. Team. I watched these numbers today, and – 
I think, man, I struck out a lot. I'd strike out about a hundred times a year. And man, I wanted to hang myself some days just going, I can't handle it. I can't can't go down. I can't go down on strikes again. I strike out so much. I strike out a hundred times a year. And it seemed like at the end of the year, look at my bubblegum card, flip it. It's right around a hundred every year. And it felt like I struck out all the time. I couldn't imagine going back to that dugout 190 times and thinking, no big deal. I couldn't imagine it. Yeah, but on the other side of that coin, you can, you probably could hit 50 home runs multiple years if you weren't worried about striking out 200 times. And it seems like that's what happened. That's what's happening. Except guys aren't hitting 50 or 60 because they don't know how to hit. They're striking out 200 times and hitting 20 and 25 and getting paid for it. If you stop paying them, it'll stop happening. Sooner or later, baseball is going to have to say, man, this product doesn't sell. What do we do? This this product does not sell. It's 200 strikeouts. It's a game of the week, like Dib said last night, and it's five hours. And it does not sell. That's a problem. Norman, we're teammates in 93 and 01. I wanted to touch a little bit on that 01 season. Pretty special season for us. We wrote it. You know, it was kind of like a – a season where we looked around at each other like, what the heck's going on? Don't question it. Just ride this wave. We ended up not uh, yeah. finishing the deal in the end, but just take me through some of the memories you have from that 01 season in Seattle. Well, I can tell you one thing about that 01 season. We would have taken it through to the end, and we'd have finished if we had Marge shot as an owner. She would have gone and gotten us what we needed to get the job done at that point. she would have. She was that owner. She would have done that. Now, that season in Seattle was just sick. It really was. Because after the first month, we didn't lose a, we didn't lose a series until September, I think. Um, we came to the ballpark every day knowing somebody else was going to get their ass kicked. Knowing that we were going to win a ball game every day. And everybody that came to our ballpark knew that they were going to get beat. They didn't know how it was going to happen but they knew that they were going to get beat. It was a lot of fun in that clubhouse. We had a lot of characters in that clubhouse. We had black guys. We had Japanese guys. We had Puerto Rican guys. We had Dominican guys. We had white guys. We didn't care who was from where. All we cared about was going out and winning that game that night, however we had to do it. Very, very, very similar to the team we had in ninety. Sabo yeah, was very I, intense. He, all he cared about was winning the game that night. I came here to win a game. That's what I came here to do. We won the game. I'm out of here. Um, Larkin, yeah. Davis, those. I mean, th- nobody wants to go 0 for 4, but 0 for 4 with a win, they're good with that because they know it's not going to happen every night. That 2001 team, it was that, that was that was a special group of guys and a special year. Look, y'all hit the ball out of the ballpark. We pitched really well. We played small ball when we needed to. I mean, we got a Hall of Famer, Edgar Martinez, hitting the ball the other way to get a guy over. We got people bunting. I mean, we got people doing all sorts of things, small ball, win ball games, putting pressure on the defense, putting pressure on the catcher, putting pressure on the pitcher. Doesn't happen today. I just don't see it happen today. And I was, uh, it worked. Yeah, because. 
two two years prior to that, I was on the '99 Braves, went to the World Series, got beat by the New York Yankees. I thought, what a great team! And I remember going into spring training that year. I'd come over from the Reds, and Bobby Cox addressed the team, and he said, "All the new players here." I just want to let you know we're the Atlanta Braves and we win every year. And this year is going to be no different. I put the lineup up and we go steamroll people. And we were loaded. And Dibs, as you pointed out earlier, that that staff of Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, we had Millwood that year came to the forefront, really did a good job for us. We were loaded. Won 105 games, got beat. And I was of the mindset, you know, I'd hear it all about this camaraderie and this this chemistry in the clubhouse. And my attitude is there's nothing, there's nothing to this chemistry stuff. It just you get the best talent and you steamroll people. That was my mindset, Norm, until that 2001 season. And then that season yeah. happened and it changed my mind because it was like, we, believe me, we were a great team. On paper, we weren't the greatest team that ever played, but we had all-stars. We had gold glovers. We had MVPs. We had batting title guys on that team. But there was something special about that year that uh, I'll never forget. And and like you said, that other team knew in the seventh inning when they were when they were winning by two, they knew we were going to come back and get them. And it wasn't anything we said. It was just a look. It was just a feeling. And I can't really explain it to people unless you were there. You know, just that raw smile, like, you know what's coming here, Norm, right? You're like, yeah, I know what's coming. And it was just a magical year. And it was too bad. Too bad in the end we couldn't finish it. That that was a pretty fun year. Dibs, I got a question for you. I, I can't leave hold, this hold without on, hold this. On, hold on, Boney. Now that you said that, yeah. now that you understand and you do understand the magic of that year and, and that it's just going to happen, now you understand when I say we were the best bullpen in baseball, the way I feel about that. Because everybody knew it. They knew when they came to our ballpark. They knew that, man – we know what's going to happen. These guys are going to have a one run. They're going to take a one run lead into the fifth, and it's over. They knew it. it. We knew it. The whole world knew it. The whole league knew it. The minor league players knew it. But nobody <laughs> knew it more than we did. I knew it. Knew Peninsula, it Virginia. That. Yeah. Yeah. If you watched it on Sports Center every night, you I were did. Like, I knew. I knew that I didn't you, want to face you, you guys. Are one of the, cockiest guys I've ever played with and you say, man, I'd be glad to take a day off. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, these other bullpens could talk about, oh yeah, we did this. Look, I'm not taking anything against bullpens in New York, Mariano and Jeff Nelson. and I'm not taking anything away from them. They just weren't us. They just weren't us. You knew with Mariano, if, if Mariano got the ball in the ninth, you knew if he had to throw to the 15th, he was going to beat you. You weren't going to beat him. You knew that. But that was Mariano. That wasn't the rest of them. You knew in Cincinnati, if you if you let us get one run up in the fifth, you were done. We knew it. Everybody knew. It. And you know that feeling because you just talked about it. No one. So I'm not I'm not trying to be cocky or anything when I say that that we were the best bullpen in baseball. We were. We knew it, and it, those other bullpens they they didn't have that. The league didn't look at them and go, the league looked at them and go, oh, they were pretty good. They were, we could compare them to the nasty boys. You compare them all you want. doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point. And it, it is, it's something, it's, it's not necessarily something you have to say. It's not spoken. It's a look and it's an understanding. And it's when you lock eyes with somebody else, like, you know, yeah, got it. I, I, I can do it. I did it my whole career. 
there were certain guys. It didn't matter who they were, how good a stuff they had, or or how <laughs> lack of good stuff they had. Lemon? Had had Lemon? my number, <laughs> and I could walk up to that plate, get in the box. I could act as confident and try to exude how good I was and just have that swagger. And I'd get in the box. I'd look at that pitcher that owned me. He'd kind of look at me, smile. I'd look at him, smile, strike one. And it was always on the black. Why? Because he knew he owned me and I knew it. Same worked in reverse. There were certain pitchers, no matter how good a stuff they had, how mediocre a stuff they had. If I owned them, I owned them. And when I stepped in the box, they knew it. I knew it. I could be old for my last 10, but I'm facing you tonight and you know what happens. And it's always that what? first pitch. I see it perfect. And it's a foot outside for ball one. And next thing you know, I'm ahead in the count. That's just the way it works. And that's what you're talking about. It was just assumed. It was just known about that 1990 nasty boy team that we, they'd already played it out in their mind. It's like, we cannot be down going into the sixth. And it usually when you think yep. that way, you're down going into the six, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Let, me, when let Jim, me give you a compliment here. Let me give you a compliment here from that 2001 team. I'm looking up your numbers. How did you not win MVP in the American League? Well, <laughs> I should have. Dude, dude. And I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't beat the hype, Dibs. I couldn't beat the hype that year. Ask Norman about it. He's, he'll be a little more partial. And, and 206 hits. Dude, that's an MVP year. Second baseman, I think that no one's ever had more RBIs in a season at second base than that. Can I answer this? Yeah, let let, let Norm kid. answer it. It sounds better. <laughs> we had a new kid on our team, Dibs, and you've got a tattoo of his number on your ass named Ichiro. Oh, Ichiro. He came, over and he, did, he came over and he did phenomenal. He had a phenomenal year. My God, when you got a guy like Boone on your team that does damage, and I mean damage, how do yep. you give that MVP? Boone was the MVP of our team, and Ichiro was the MVP of the league. Boone was the MVP of that league that year. Just If Ichiro would come over in 2000 and had the year, it's been slam dunk for Boone in 2001. He should have been the MVP of the league, period, just for the damage numbers alone. That's it. And I'd have a, I'd have a tattoo of Boone on my ass. Exactly. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Norman. All right, Dibs, I got a question for you. I can't let the show end without this. I got two questions for you. I want to talk about Doug DeCenzo. I love it. Still to this day, I've never asked you about it. And I want to talk when when you take the ball and you drill them, run into first base, for those out there listening to the Boone Pocket. And the second one is the famous 19, I believe it was 92, tussle with skipper Lou Pinella. Because after this, I'll tell you, I had a few of those early in my career with him. Ended up being my favorite manager of all time. But uh, touch on those two two, uh, stories a little bit. All right, so you'll get a kick out of this too because I could tie in a Sabo story as well on on the Desenzo. So, you know, I, first of all, DeCenzo, at that point in his career, I mean, you, you know, we did analytics. We did all the charts and all that stuff. He was, or, he was five for five off of me lifetime. So I knew that going into the, to the game. I knew the numbers of all the Cubs against me. Um, I was coming off a four-game suspension for the fight with Eric Yelding. 
So I hadn't pitched in about a week. Uh, and it's the same game that Andre Dawson got thrown out. Quietest, nicest guy I've ever met. Lost his mind. Joe West is behind the plate. Throws out Andre Dawson while I'm warming up to come in the bottom of the eighth to get some work. I think we're losing. I think it was seven to four. But um, at the time, might have been seven to, or, or about six to four. But I, I'm going to come in a losing game to get some work because Lou wanted me to go back out there, uh, you, you know, get the edge. And so I go out there, first guy, double, Enzo. I throw him a pass ball, and the runner goes to third. So they've got the lead, one run in. I mean, I faced two guys. One guy had scored. There's another earned run out there. And Norm can tell you, back then, high ERAs cost you money um, going to get, get your you know, raise and a salary. So, Desenzo, that little bastard, lays down a perfect bunt for, for a, a squeeze. Like, of all the guys, he's five for five with a couple of doubles, I think, off of me. Because he, he really sprayed the ball really well off of me. He used my power against me, and he had my number. He lay, that little bastard lays down a perfect bunt. So I lost my mind. I had, I had a meltdown for a second. I picked the ball up. You can look at the video because, you know, it's had millions of views. And I kind of stroll another five feet towards the line to, to line him up. And here's the thing. I actually didn't get him. I, I threw it and missed him. And hit him in the leg, and it went into right field. So he goes to second. I get thrown out of the game. I go up in the locker room. But that's not the best part of the story. I'm going to give you the best part right now. The best part is I'm sitting up in, in the uh, I'm sitting up in the locker room all by myself. I'm having a cigarette. I just get tossed out of the game, and I'm thinking, what in the F have you done now? And I'm like, man. And I had done some bonehead stuff in my career. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this is just going to be the worst night of my life. Well, it gets worse. Sabo had followed me up there after I got thrown out because I guess the inning ended. He takes a chair and throws it right by my head as hard as he could. And he airs me out, and he was absolutely 100% uh, justified in doing it. You know, we need you out there at the end of the game. You can't be effing around and doing this stupid stuff and, and throwing at guys and doing crap. Like, and, he, and he nailed it. He, he, uh, it. Had it been six inches lower, I wouldn't be talking to you right now because I wouldn't have had a face. But, yeah, so Sabo scared the hell out of me. And then he's like a grizzly bear standing, and I'm like, I'm not getting up. I'm not going to get out of my chair. I'm just going to stay here and keep puffing away on the cigarette. Like that just didn't happen. <laughs> All right. So the Lou, the Lou thing the Lou. was different. The Lou thing was, yeah, the Lou thing was, uh, I was sore. I pitched in a couple games in a couple days. And Norm knows when you're hanging and your arm's filling you at the end of the year, uh, you're just, you're, you can't wait for the end of the season. And, we weren't going to the playoffs, and, you know, we'd called up a bunch of guys and stuff. So Lou comes into the players' lounge before the game, and he's basically like, dude, you know, how's your arm feeling? And I'm like, listen, man, I couldn't get loose last night, and, you know, it was killing me last night. You know, I could really use a day off. That was the worst thing I ever could have said, because he starts freaking out on me. You want to be a closer in the big leagues, and you can't pitch every day, and he just goes on and on and on. 
And finally, he just says, don't even effing dress out tonight. Do what I'm told. I didn't dress out. I sat in the locker room drinking the whole game and watching us beat the Braves 3-2. to two. Uh, we, we used three pitchers in the ninth inning, and I think Scudder got his first big league save. So, you know, somebody poured a bottle of champagne. I'm going to clean out my stuff in my locker, get in my car and go home, you know, kind of like with my tail between my legs. Um, I, I probably should have been out there, and I would have had a crack in another save kind of thing. And then Lou comes in, um, and I, I, a reporter had come up to me and said, hey, Lou, Lou says you're hurt and you're going to have to go on the disabled list or something like that. And I just said, listen, that's a lie. I just needed a day off. I'm fine. The reporter, and I think it was Hal McCoy, the Hall of Fame reporter, he went in and the translation to Lou was, hey, Dibble called you an effing liar. So the translation between me and Lou from Hal McCoy was a little bit different than it should have been, and that's all Lou needed to hear. And he comes out of the, his locker room. His locker room, uh, his, his office was right across from my locker. He just looked right at me. I knew, oh, crap, and I dropped the stuff in my hands. And he came in, and I grabbed him, and I tried to hold him and not, you know, hurt him, let him hurt himself. And if you see the videotape, I'm holding the lockers, a really thick wood. I'm holding the locker. I got him in a, in a you know, neck lock. And I didn't want to hurt him, though, because, you know, after I hit him a couple times, I was like, damn, this is my boss. You know, I can't be doing this. <laughs> so <laughs> that was what was going through my mind at the time. But to finish the story, the next day we had a meeting in Marge's office. She went nuts on Lou and said, I should fire you for going after one of my players, blah, 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 blah. And But Lou and I were fine. After that, I, I got the save that night. Lou came out, threw a bunch of fake punches at me in the gut. And it was over. I was able to move on. Yeah, I know that. I know that about Lou, man. I had round and round as a kid, and then second time around with Lou is a different story. But we could go yep. on all day about him. All right, Norman, a little rapid fire. Three toughest outs in your career. Who are the three guys you don't want up there? Or did you even have three? Brett Butler, Brett Butler and Omar Vizquel. Omar Vizquel is the top of the line. Dibs, same thing. Beth- um, Senzo and Jose Chico Lynn. Razor shines. Uh, Razor shines. Okay. Tony Gwynn. He, he had my number. Marquise Grissom had my number. Good contact guys, Booney. Good contact guys had my number. Good contact. Guys who swing like today would have been no problem. Storman, uh, tell people out there listening to the Boone podcast what you're up to now in Texas. Little guiding going on. A, yeah, I run a charter boat. I run a, a trout and redfish and a black drum and flounder fishing business. Uh, I've got a beautiful wife. I've got a 15-year-old daughter that runs cross-country letters as a freshman in cross-country and track. I've got an eighth-grade-old boy playing baseball right now. Very cool. Dibs, you worked at ESPN, Best Damn Sports Show, Fox, Color for the Nationals. 2014 to present, you got the Rob Dibble Show. Where can we catch the Rob Dibble Show? On your iHeartRadio app. It's free to download it. Um, I'm on in New Haven, Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, Springfield, Mass. We pretty much cover New England, and we carry the Yankees, Giants, and we're the flagship station for UConn Sports. 
Very cool. Guys, I want to, t- I want to say thank you very much for coming on the Boone podcast. I think people are going to like this one. Pretty raw, pretty honest, pretty cool. What we do at the end of the Boone podcast each and every time is we bring back the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans for our guests. Dano. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you? Wonderful. Excellent. Okay, this one is for both of you. Dibs, you can start it off if you like, but the question comes from Dave in Bakersfield, and he wants to know, what was it like in the bullpen before you guys had to get warmed up at the end of a game? Were you guys chomping at the bit, or were you laid back and just kind of chilling and making jokes? I mean, there was there was kind of a casual approach to preparing, you know, probably about the third or fourth, fifth inning, you know, you, you did some stretching, maybe the trainer gave you a stretch. You took some, uh, you know, Advil or Tylenol, or whatever. Norm and I would usually come out together about the fifth inning and go down and, and hang out and kind of watch the game. You kind of, you know, paid attention. You paid attention to what was going on, who was hitting well in the game. But it, it was it was very comfortable and loose. You know, not a lot of shenanigans and games and stuff like that, like I think people think. But, you know, we were pretty loose down there. A lot of guys chewing seeds and – Flicking seeds and stuff like that. Norm, we were very, very serious about what we did. We were very, very prepared. Uh, we had our routine. We had it down pat. It worked for us from getting to the ballpark for two fifteen, playing long toss, to yep. coming in after the standing, doing our stretching, getting back out there in the fifth inning. Now there were some times, like in Philadelphia, when we rode that. Uh, garage door that went 20 feet up in the air electrically that we were hanging on it and we we had our fun down there um you know this is a man's game we played it like men but we acted like kids and that's the beautiful part of the game all right everybody the nasty boys thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast we appreciate it for having us. Thanks for having us. Mailbag. Ready, Daddy. Hi, Boone. You're ready to rock and roll with the Brett Boone mailbag. I'm ready to go. Okay. Brett, this one comes from Lou in Long Island. He wants to know why do relief pitchers run out from the bullpen? By the time they even get there, it's almost over. I don't understand it. Uh, the over sprint or the look at me, this is what I do. Uh, I don't know. It's just their thing. You know, it's they come up with some guys sprint. I like the guys that kind of, you know, jog in. So, no, I'm not stalling. I want to get in the game, but I've got a job to do. And then as you get closer to the mound walk, I kind of like that. I, the guys that come out of there just on a dead sprint. I don't know. Maybe it fires them up. Uh, no clue. I, I cannot get into the mind of a pitcher. They're different animals. All right. Let us head back into the mailbag. All right, Brett. This one comes from Roger in St. Pete, Florida. Silly question, Brett, but I've always wondered, what exactly does pine tar do for a hitter? Pine tar. Well, there's a pine tar has been around for a long time. And to use it successfully, you need the right combo of pine tar and rosin. And you got to get the right mixture to get that stickiness or the tackiness that you want. There's a new thing that's come out in the last 20, 25 years. It's called Manny Moda stick. And for me, it's the perfect, you rub it on the bat and 
It's not like crazy glue, but it's about as sticky as it could be. Sometimes with the pine tar, the, the thing I found at fault, if you don't get the mixture right, it can be slippery. When it's real warm out, it can act almost like an oil versus something that's sticky. So I, I never was a pine tar guy. I always went to the Manny Moda stick. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of this here Boone Podcast, as well as the voice. That's me in the beginning, by the way. The executive producer of the Boone Podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content all handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors, friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you on the next one.